you're never really born a stylist. You're made one, but there's a few things along the way, I think, that can help you open your mind to the, um, the sort of being flexible and forever saying yes. You know, it's a certain type of person who can go, oh, you want a pink elephant on Tuesday? Let me get back to you on that one. Instead <laughs> of, oh my bloody God. Or we do have a, a, a green one that might be able to be tinged orange if we shoot it in a red room and counterbalance the colours. You know, all those sorts of... So it really is styling, styling, decorating, anything um, that is under the disciplines we work in is really intentional and motivated. Like we're always trying to get something. It's not just, oh, the air's beautiful here or look at this accident. Nothing's accidental. It's always highly motivated, but it always has a, um, a purpose. Hi, I'm Dan Brophy, and welcome to The Naked Creative Show, a podcast where we talk to everyday creatives about their process in the most practical terms, how they structure their workday, how caffeinated they like to be when they sit down to work, how they gather inspiration or overcome blocks. From designers to comedians to poets to 80s aerobics instructors, I want to explore the processes that make achieving creative goals possible for anyone. On the blog, thenakedcreativeshow.com, you'll find tools to begin or refine your artist's journey. Megan Morton's work as a stylist is intuitive and unique and inclusive. She, according to her website, makes atmospheres that make people extremely happy. And you can experience the work that she's done in ad campaigns, magazine covers, or if you were to come to her studio and school in Rosebury, in Sydney's Inner West, where you could learn to do it all yourself. She had initially invited me to interview her at Redleaf Beach one beautifully sunny afternoon in autumn. But due to some technical difficulties, my recording device wasn't recording, we had to reschedule. She offered me to come to her house, at which I jumped at the opportunity because to see inside Megan Morton's home was too much to resist. She welcomed me in, she excused herself while she dressed, and she returned moments later in a flowing silk maxi dress with no makeup on and her ponytail wrapped in a silk scarf. She poured me a cup of herbal tea and she lit incense in her favorite new accessory, which was a matte brass burner, which looked sort of like a small Brancusi sculpture. She was excited about the fact that she could paint her nails while we did the interview, but she was so engaged in the sharing of ideas, she never actually finished both hands. Here is my interview with Megan Morton. Megan! Here we are, Dan Brophy. We're in the... the the Morton Palace. We're in the Morton Palace, Shea Morton, and this, this is actually an important room because it's the library room. And most people, I think, have a living room that they expect living to be done in. But when you have a living room that is set up decoratively beautifully, you, I think people find it hard to actually sit in it. So what I've done in this room, if you've noticed the... The bookshelf is behind you mm. because if you walk into a room full of books, it's actually, to me, it's just like horny. It's too exciting. Right. So it's behind, so it becomes as a reflective notion rather than, oh my God, I'm in the best room ever with the best bookshelf ever. Yeah. So it's wall-to-floor ceiling books and they're actually in vague categories. You know, people have this idea of color-coding books. I don't know what you think, but... When people colour code books, I think what they're saying is, look at me, isn't it beautiful where orange meets red meets 
pink. Or I've had a really nice holiday and I've actually sorted my linen cupboard out and now I'm colour coding my book. So I don't even think it's meant to be as pretentious as people who hate it make out. But this is in a really nice order of if there was a fire, believe it or not, this is the section I take. Okay. Just like none of this can ever move. Okay. And it's in its really vague, it's in a really good category because it's really special things like copies of um, apartmentos and magazines and this gorgeous book that I've based my whole life on called Taking Things Seriously, 75 Objects with Unexpected Significance. So great. So, so great. But there's also some, like a, you know, Caroline Quartermain unwrapped in French and this very beautiful book that I would love you to read. It's um, my favourite picture book because it is, it's the saddest story ever. You will literally cry at the end. It's a cut paper book called Love, illustrated and designed by Vanni. And I first shot Natalie Bloom in her beautiful house, like, I don't know, 12 years ago. And I picked up that book out of all the books on her beautiful bookshelf. And I just started crying like a baby. And I was so embarrassed because it was one of my first big shoots, like with a, you know, an influential person in a very big major house. And um, I just lost it over that book. And she sent me the book and she said... It is the best book ever, and it really is the best book ever. And when people have babies or have significant milestones, I try and buy them the book. It's getting harder and harder to find because the story is so gorgeous. Um, and it's one of those picture books that, you know, like anything, it, like your silent retreat meditation, you can communicate with, with such succinct, small amount of words when looks, the, um, the feeling and the art form is there. It looks like it's made with love. It it's called so love, and it's a, cut, it's a cut paper picture book in a Lunig-esque style, but really yeah. spare, simplistic line drawings and ideas. I will have a look at it once we're done. Perfect. Um, Megan Morton, when people say, what do you do? What do you tell them? I just say, I'm Megan Morton's stylist, as in no space in between, no breaths, full stop. Because I think the whole world's gone crazy over the term slashy. And slashy is a great way to... I think talk about your skill set or your toolbox of what you do but at the beginning and the end of every job that's really what we are we're we're there to give styling direction so whether it's a big house and someone needs us to help them make it beautiful beyond any sort of um, architectural beauty or over decorative beauty um, down to an image for an ad campaign down to an Instagram down to you know an atmosphere so it's all about just styling beauty and when people know you how do they usually know you? I'm not sure. I, I used to think that the school... Um, What's the school? The school is the school is my passion project that started uh, about three and a half years ago when we moved our photo studio to Rosebury. And we decided that things that were important to us were best shared. And when you share something, what happens is you, for a fleeting moment, get really scared that you've given it to someone who might go off with it and actually make it even more gangbusters. But the minute you release it, the minute you are hungry again for the next idea, and it's quite addictive. So most of the teachers at the school um, really, I guess, rely on that. Miso, uh, our paper artist in Melbourne, she, she says it's really important to her practice now because the more she gives it away and sees it flourish in everybody else's hands... The, the more she wants to work on it and become, you know, more Miso than even Miso is. Rachel Castles, again, you know, another great person who's the top of her field. 
anyone who's willing to stand up there and actually give people the real answers as to how they do it, not just, oh, I'm so-and-so, I'm so fantastic, look at me, but actually say, this is how I do it. Step one is this, and not miss out any steps in between. You know, the idea that someone will wholeheartedly give over their techniques and process, knowing full well that no one else is going to even get near them or touch them. So the school was really based on that principle, but also because I didn't want to just say, oh, it's just a styling school for people who want to do things that I love to do. So we invited what we called, you know, friends of the school, people who we really um, thought had amazing work ethic and had really fantastic ideas and, the, more importantly, the ability to share. So when what the Megan Morton Massif mm. is... One part, the school, which is you know educating people on in areas of styling. Yep. One part, uh, styling people, beautiful homes. Yep. One part, writing books. Yeah, we. I find um, the more and more, the more and more the world goes immersive into what I call top layer Instagram social media messaging. The more and more I want to write better books. So I try and. You know, we have our two books on at the moment that we're writing, one for an American audience and another one for um, an Australian publisher that will be exported to the world, which is really exciting. But I feel like this day and age, we don't need fast fixes. We need proper rationale and reasons why things are so beautiful. And I think in this world where everything is quickened and likened to, you know, a McHappy meal, um, it's time to talk about not slow decorating or slow styling, but but something that is meaningful, and you can only put um, you can only put yourself in it when you do take time. Like anything, if you do it quick, you get a great result, but the outcome is short lived. Which is also why in our styling practice, we will work on short lived jobs that will literally, you know, don't sit on the bench because it'll break. It's only meant to last for the you know the minute of the picture, as well as then you know hopefully people's homes that they never ever ever want to swap out or change. So we want to work on beauty that is both short-term and long-term. And books, I think, really play into that um, business, business mechanic. So how I liken it is um, it's a horizontal business. So we have a photo studio, a props room. We have styling resources and services. We have a publications unit. We have a school unit, an education unit. Uh, and then everything else seems to fall nicely underneath that horizontal line instead of thinking oh my God, we've got to stuff up and do this, so we've got to scale back and do this. Um, at the end of the day, then you're able to go, oh, I'm doing something very beautiful at least three times this week. Even if you have to do two other things that might not be as beautiful as you might hope to keep the whole thing going. Mm-hmm. So it's like a sushi train. My sister once likened business to a sushi train, especially when you're in the freelance um, sector. The idea is you've got your, you know, You've got your crab meat, you've got your wagyu, <laughs> you've got your little weird things that are gimmicky things that people just love the look of, and that's how I imagine it. I really imagine the business as a sushi train. And you know what it feels like to have a world full of crab sticks. Oh my God, right? And that's that's why everyone loves going to sushi train, mm. because it's, you know, we eat with our eyes and we're like, oh my God, I, oh, I'm obsessed with sushi train. Mm. I love it. I mm. think it's amazing. I'm going to Japan soon, and I don't want to tell my... Um, the person I'm travelling with that I only want to eat at sushi train trains. Like, actually, I don't care about how good the karajai chicken is in a proper restaurant. I just want to eat at sushi trains because I think the idea of mobile food dazzling right before your eyes, it's so ridiculous, isn't it? Unless it's on a moving very slowly on a mini oh, locomotive on a in front of me. locomotive, I don't exactly. want to know about it. 
I just think it's hilarious. But also, so the idea that such small, tasty, tapas-style morsels are delivered on a train, it's just so lovely. At different price points, and that's really what, I guess, my sister's analogy for my business, that things, you know, you can access us at different price points, just like you can have the crab sticks versus... The wagyu. You know, the wagyu, or the, or the little, you know, five blueberries, three little bits of mango, and you've got your $2 fruit salad, which is just your palate cleanser at the end, which is also important. So when someone says, come into my home, mm-hmm. I want you to make it beautiful, do they want you to give them you? Yeah, I think people think that. And what we try and do in the first 20 minutes is say, this is not about them or us or our taste or what we've done in the past or what you've seen on the internet it's about what we call a third space so the house really is the third space and the third space when done successfully is a beautiful hybrid of what we think the house needs what the house and the physicality and the scale and the air in the house really does deserve and then what the owner is prepared to um you know, pay for and also accommodate and, and live with it. So it's this, it's such a luxury to do someone's house. It really is sort of the greatest thing you can do because someone is saying, we want you to help us live all together in our domestic love bubble forever and ever. You know, I always imagine, I you know, I get very sad when I hear that people have uh, sold the house or split up or, you know, fighting over a um, an ottoman we've made. But I also think that sometimes you can make a space so beautiful that it does become a third space and that's when I think interior design is really successful and do you do everything from teeny tiny shacks to big beautiful mansions yeah we've done lots of lots of trophy houses and we've done lots of small things but because we don't bill as a as a as an interior designer or an interior decorator would we're really interested in the minute so if someone says you know we had a client about five years ago and she had been with every single, well, uh, she'd spent a lot of money with major interior architects, designers, decorators, landscapers, and she just said, My house just isn't me. I've spent millions of dollars and, you know, I love to cook, blah, blah, blah. So I said, Okay, let me come back with an idea. And if you like one of these ideas, then we can, uh, we can talk about moving forward. And I just thought to myself, What does someone who feels like they've been misinterpreted? But who loves to cook, what do they want? They want like a bespoke cutlery drawer. So we made her, you know, the, the idea was that we got the job of um, three, yeah, a three drawer bespoke cutlery console that was flocked in Hermes orange. <laughs> so, you know, anyone who entertains doesn't have one set of cutlery like you and I would have, mm. you know. They have a whole plethora of things and that's their joy. So... When people have lots and lots of money, sometimes it can be difficult to try and really find what really does float their boat. Because, you know, a lot of things can float their boat, right? Because, you know, money can buy you that. But when you actually tap into someone's true, you know, what they really want to be in that house, and for her it was being, you know, that that really, you know, generous host, which is just, you know, foreign to me. But once you put yourself in their shoes, you can sort of tap in and hopefully get an idea that they love and then... And then it's like anything. Once they once they are you know 
in that zone they love the house and then they you know it becomes a really successful job because I think sometimes those things are little you know sometimes things that make people's lives different and better are small things then they're usually not the really big things we do the big things because they take up a lot of time and a lot of conversation space and they get, keep us busy with meetings and project management but I think sometimes it's those little things wherever I've lived I've always enjoyed like a weekly ritual not because I'm um, you know domestic I'm not at all but I like to play certain music even if I work on a weekend I will take a weekday off so I can just sit down and collect energy and just go through my motions of a few things so I don't you know I mean I guess later I'll probably get facials and do all that kind of stuff or play golf or play mahjong but for now I I um you know I go pick all my herbs for the week even though I don't use them I just really enjoy getting my hands in the dirt I put music on um you know there's a series of songs I like a formula if you like for maximum relaxation and then uh, I also make sure I started doing this idea of filling my brain with things that were from printed um, as much as I'm filling it with things online because I was finding myself as a speed reader really flicking through online stories and things that I really cared about. I was just really only getting top level stuff. And worse than that, then I'd put my own spin on it and turn, turn a really you know great story into a fabulous one with my own artistic license and so my sister came and did a time in motion on my styling business and my sister is a really smart business academic and she said you're going to have like a stress-related heart attack and you're just not able I can just foresee in two years time you won't be able to upkeep you know the business and what you're doing because it's so time wasted you know and for a I guess for a business person coming into a styling business they're like shut this thing down and I said tell me tell me what what can I do and she said well you know for a stylist and and it's true not just what she saw as a advisor but it it is the the cold hard facts of it styling itself is really easy well you know that's not the hard bit the the bit that is time consuming like most creative processes isn't the doing or the turning up it's the pre and so you can't no one ever pays you for the idea they expect that you're Dan Brophy and you've got the idea or you're Megan Morton and you've got a inkling of where you're going to go with it um, but they also won't pay you adequate time for the sourcing so for us for one day styling we have a two-day sourcing which most people complain about so we'll take that to a day day and a half but I can't do much in a day I mean I can do a lot in a day but I can't do my big ideas and my thinking so we need to forward plan those they take up sometimes you know a month of work and so how will you ever get your money back on that or how will you ever build that um, and once I realized that, I thought, okay, what I need to do is I'm, I'm not able to shrink the time I spend on stewing my jobs because that's my most favorite part of the job, just sitting in it all and looking at what's been done before, what's been, um, what's been done currently and how I can better it and how it can be the most beautiful thing of its genre. Um, can't ever be skinny down, but it can be more meaningful and valuable when you don't do it on the internet. So when you go to the library or when you go and talk to someone who might be a um, specialist in that field or you find someone who is really, really into the topic itself and you can get so much more out of that than just Googling, going onto page 10 of the Google and seeing what it is that another person has done in the same context because you're almost then just a photocopy of a photocopier. So what I try and do now, instead of, um, you know, I'm really mindful of how much time we spend on each 
job, but I'm more mindful now of how much we take from old masters or people who've, you know, done it out on their own pre-internet and done exquisite results, and then trying to get a little bit under their skin and trying to get my ideas from there rather than going to Google or Pinterest. And the that, last resort, we go to Pinterest. <laughs> does that look like going to libraries yeah. or bookshops? So the whole reason I um, wanted to move here, because I love this library next door to me, and the library itself is the best design library in Australia. Really? I don't know if you know about libraries. Do you, go, do you um, spend time at libraries? I was really across which Melbourne libraries were good for oh, what. The but... Melbourne libraries are beautiful. Well, in Sydney, well, in, in any, you know, any, any really good library... It is, like most things that are government-run in Australia, it is really under-patroned but really over-resourced. Right. <laughs> Especially, you know, in big cities, in places like Sydney and Melbourne. I can't speak on behalf of other places that would probably have the opposite problem. But um, when I lived on the North Shore, how I wrote my books, my first two books, because I couldn't work out how do people splice in time between running a family, having a marriage or a relationship... And then going to work, you know, half the time you're sort of furniture removing, so you're kind of physically exhausted and you're mentally exhausted and then you're emotionally exhausted. And uh, I used to book myself in as a community leader to the Lane Cove Library. And the Lane Cove Library was so amazing because it was, you know, uh, over-resourced, under-patroned, and it had Tretford carpet. And in the styling world, Tretford carpet is like, Oh my God, it's like the Rolls Royce of carpet. It's made from like the chin hair of a llama in South America. It's the softest underfoot commercial grade carpet you can buy. I, I'm making it up if I say it's $600 a meter, but it's something ridiculous. And people always say, oh, I want that colored carpet, which is, you know, they're always saying I want Trevor carpet. It's commercial carpet that, uh, you know, if you've got a really big budget, you, you would get it in teal in your living room mm. and it would be heaven. And it's like cashmere under your feet. And I saw, I was like, wow, I walked past one day doing my shop and I saw what I knew to be Tretford carpet and I couldn't believe my eyeballs. And I walked in and then they had the Corbin and Flaubert stools and all the gorgeous things that, you know, I love. And I was like, oh my God, booked myself in the very next day, got myself a library card, took my lunch in like a student and sat in the, uh, the meeting room of the library because you can book yourself a whole room to yourself. Um, and it was the best writing day I'd ever had. And because I wasn't on the computer per se, I was on my laptop. I'd switched my Wi-Fi off. I was just on my laptop writing. I had my library card. I had access to all the beautiful books that the world has to offer. I'd bring them in, photocopy the page if I really wanted it, which is really the old-fashioned way of pinning a page, isn't it? Do I really want to spend 25 cents on this? (laughs) Yes, I love what they're saying here. Yes, I love what colors are working here. Um, And then at the end of that day, I'd come home with a word document that I just thought was the, the you know the best writing I'd ever done ideas that I just couldn't wait to get out and do regardless of how much time they were going to take me and just had this new lease on life and so every two weeks I booked myself in at the, at the same room and I thought it was that library that gave me my good juju and it's then how I got my book done um, quickly while I was working and doing all the other things which book was that? Um, it was Things I Love okay. I wrote Things I Love at the library Home Love I had um made from a column that I used to write in the Sydney Morning Herald in The Age. So that was a top-up, but I started writing the top-ups there, so sort of a book and a half written there. And then I thought when I moved from that area, oh, my God, my library juju is gone. I'm going to have to, you know, pick up sticks and just, you know, think of a way to produce all those good results. And um, when we moved next door to this library, I just thought I'd won the trifecta in life, that there was beautiful beach. I have a sand phobia. Well, I have a sand... I've Sorry... I you have, ha- have had have a, had a mm. sand phobia, past tense. 
Um, and actually, one of my favourite psychics years and years ago said to me one day when I was living in Potts Point and I just, I think I was married but no children, she said, you're going to have three kids, have a boat and live by the beach. And I said, you are the worst psychic ever. <laughs> one, I'm not having kids. No way. As if I'm having kids. Two, uh, yeah, sand phobia cannot even, even saying sand makes me, you know, get a bit anxious and I get a flush around my neck and and boats as if I, I you know, I have a, I used to grow up on dams and uh, just lots of eels around my, you know, just torturing me and I just think in my adult life I want to wear shoes and not be in dark water. Anyway, fast forward, <laughs> here I am, three children. But the beach next door to me has both sand and grass, which is why I love red leaf. Because you don't have to deal with the sand if you choose not to. If it's not a good sand day. So you moved from North Shore, the big... Yeah, I basically moved libraries from my big house in the North Shore. We had had a really big pool. I had a chicken pen that I built based on a Martha Stewart-style one that was one that you didn't have to bend down in. It was so big and beautiful, like an aviary. Um, And, you know, a garden and a really big house and architectural plans approved and all that kind of stuff. But what I realized is um, when you live in your own castle, in compound-like surrounds, a couple of things came very clear to me. One, you are screaming at your husband all the time about cleaning the gutters. And so his weekend is never really his own. So he's like, honey, do that. Or honey, have you been to the pool chemical place? Or honey, have you, you know... And you become this nagging fishwife that you promised yourself you would never be. And you promised him you'd never make him be (laughs) Uh, all to have this beautiful suburban life two you actually spend a lot of time wishing people would come over but because the way I think suburbia is built is unless you live in a cul-de-sac and you've just won the lottery with the best street ever and the best neighbors ever it is quite lonely I used to just think god I just wish someone had come around and a lot of people too build their fences up so high because we're so paranoid and we want to keep everybody out that it it isn't conducive to that so I just found um, it was a little bit lonely for me and also I'd just done a really great story on an architect in Melbourne, Rob Mills and I'd just shut his own house and a bit like Stylist's own house being crap and you know doctors having children with permanently runny noses Rob's house was, of course it was beautiful and wonderful but it wasn't the house I thought it would be and to, to such great surprise it had everything I thought it wouldn't have and it was just you know heaven and he said I choose to live here because when I have my daughters uh, on the weekends um, and when I have my weekend I want to be near a park but I don't want to have to spend the whole weekend mowing my own lawn and so he bought this house purely because it was you know literally uh, across the road from this amazing park that had its own garden um, its own kitchen garden tennis courts you know all that kind of stuff that you want and I thought he said something really smart like borrow from the community what you need and I thought that's it you borrow from the community what you need instead of trying to build your best library ever or your most amazing pool so you look like you're in a Slim Aaron's you know set or whatever it is that you're really into work out what the community has to offer and then move backwards and so this really does that for me it has the water with with grass and it has the world's best library and then you know what happened then is we had to get three big skips outside of our big house and we fill three skips easily because when you have children and, a, you know, a big house, you just fill it with stuff because you don't ever say, oh, come to my house where there's only the best of everything. You fill it with, you know, you, no one likes white noise in houses, just like no one, no one, unless they are um, learned. 
uh, likes the, the white noise that is silence, do they? We want mm. these big houses filled with big things to say, hey, look, isn't life beautiful here? And what I know now is that you can have just as much a beautiful life but in a smaller contained way if you rearrange your priorities. Look, also, our to be totally tr- truthful, our eldest children were leaving, um, they were go- coming to high school across this side of the bridge, so the move was inevitable. And also, our lovely schnauzer, one day I used to, every Wednesday, I'd let my chickens out. I'd have a day where I'd write and work from home. The chickens would be out, Radio National, beyond classical music, just filling the air. One day I went to, where did I go? I think I went to the shops to pick something up, came back, and our dog had uh, killed all the chickens and lined their heads up and their bodies up. And I just thought, wow, that for me was the end of my suburban dream. It was quite <laughs> metaphoric and quite cinematic. I was like, you know, I don't know, it was like ABC classical. It was like the afternoon crescendos and all the big, dramatic, gorgeous music that I love. And little August, the schnauz was literally in the, we had quite a big block, literally in the very back corner shivering because he knew that his, his days were over and he'd literally killed six chickens, lined them up, psycho style. And uh, for me, I, my husband came home and I said, honey, it's just, you know, We're out. I think, I think this is it. <laughs> Fabulous. So when you, when you first started out, mm. is this, did you aspire to this? Cause I don't feel like this, has this sort of job or world been available since you were a kid to know that yeah, that's could be something I, to aspire to? I didn't know what it was as a, um, as an adjective, I guess, or or a title or a profession, and there was nowhere you could study, but I knew what it was as as a as a you know as a person because I grew up on a banana farm, and what I used to do, I used to do three really annoying things for my family. One, I used to get a hero magazine, which I just spend all my money on that, and Peter Alexander, um, mail order, and I'd cut everything up and I'd make my own collage. And my mum and her sisters were. Um, Really, they were hilarious. They weren't good at craft, but they just loved to do it. And so they used to do things like holly hobby with a bit of um, cotton wool under her head for the bonnet, and then they'd lacquer it onto a tile and then put a bit of ribbon and sort of give it to each other and make these really weird crafts. So I was surrounded by by really sort of do-it-yourself things. My mum and dad were into this magazine called Grassroots and I don't have them here otherwise I'd show them to you because you would just gar at how amazing they are. It was um, a very beautiful magazine that basically if, if you look at it now it's basically kinfolk but daggy. So wow. how to build a fire but for people who were really building a fire not just building one for Instagram. How to make crazy paving, how to break in a horse, how to grow pumpkins when it's not pumpkin season. And so my mom basically taught herself how to be a farm person having had no farm experience we had a banana farm um and she really she'd say okay this month you're all getting horses and my mother would tame these wild horses into these little you know they were like pet horses basically they were like our dogs um and then we got into pony club and you know then she'd say right we're digging a pool i'm going to dig you a pool megan and then the family will have a family pool and we're going to build you a shed and they they just sort of got on with stuff and they, it was never driven by aesthetics or anything to do with beauty it was just really let's have fun and do it and I feel like some of my styling isms are from that kind of grassroots magazine where if if you don't know how to do it just have a go see where it takes you it doesn't have to be the best version of it but you know making something's beautiful 
why I custom all my clothes, not because I want to. It's a pain. My alterations person hates me. But if I see a really nice bit of sari ribbon in India and it's just the right width, of course I'm going to make my person stitch it down my jeans and have sari jeans that everyone thinks is Isabel Moran. <laughs> I mean, I'd buy Isabel Moran if they had the right colours, but, you know. So, I mean, I was going to mention it later on, but mm. since we're on topic, I, I always go, oh, I love what Megan's wearing today. And mm. it's usually something I've never seen before. But do you have a way of styling day-to-day yeah, so outfits in a similar way to the I way really you work I really love scarves and accessories, which is why I love giving people cutlery drawers lined in orange or anything that that is based around really macro stuff. Um, and because I love silk rolled edge, and anyone who's ever had a mess fetish understands that even if you're rich or poor, you don't stop loving it, right? You'll mm. just find a way. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that's too a good thing about being brought up by country people. You you know, you know can't unlike what you like. Even my dad would say that. You, you know, Cut up all the magazines you like, waste all your money on that, make collages. I used to make them um, light switch covers, and so it would be my brother's birthday, and I'd say, I'm so excited, Benny. Wait till you see what I've made you. And he said, he would say, if you've made me another bloody light switch, I'm going to like throw it back in your face, and I'd be just horrified. Or you know those satchels that, I don't know, you're probably too young, but we used to have the school cases, because my mom's a school teacher, like literally the school cases with the you know hard covers and the little... Mm, I yeah. used to get those and collage them. And then I'd go into my dad's shed and, um, you know, he was trained as a plumber, so I'd have all these pipes and I'd make um, coat rails, like out of a toilet roll holder and something so disgusting. My parents still have them. And then my parents used to um, put me up for the Brisbane Easter Show Craft Awards and I'd like make a farmer puppet out of paper mache and I'd get number one. I know, my mum and dad still have it. So I, I think just making things makes you just it makes you not worried about having a go at anything so when you when you have a have a go at anything attitude you can make sun tea you can be a bit flexible so when with clothing because i love you know god i love vintage valentino and oscar de la renta and i spend every thursday for at least two hours going down first dibs you know the new vintage selection of clothes that starts at about two grand and up but even oh, if is I, it online? Yeah, okay. it's heaven. It's like eBay for rich people. It's the best thing ever. Um, but even if you, even if I could buy everything I wanted in the clothes world, it is too catalogy. It's like having a house that has everything done. It's tick, 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 tick. And for me, the the real interesting stuff is when people start merging high and low, or what we call posh pop together. So it's why I like in my interiors, I like Petrina Frau as much as the next person, but I also like making. You know, my lounge is, is not amazing yet, but it's the basis of it because it's waiting for its top. But, you know, you can't get a custom lounge this long, so I have things that I buy from designer stores and then I'll sit with something and make something, just like my jeans during the trim. Only because, you know, I saw on the Sartorialist like six years ago some gorgeous French woman and she had on jeans with trim down the side, kind of pre-Isabel Marant maybe even. And I just kept it in my head and thought, that's a really lovely idea. And then... Um, I noticed that the Hermes ends of their silk scarves are hand-stitched, and I thought that's actually kind of how you do it, instead of having a raw edge, and yeah, that's how I kind mm. of dress. I, I like to have silks. I like to have, like, I I love the idea of silk, you know, not because it's expensive or cashmere, but because it actually is just... But your silhouette's always really unusual. It's always either a, a maxi, a big dress, or if it's a jacket, it's got oh, well, that's, a sleeve yeah, that I've never seen before. That's purely because um, I have, you know, I've had lots of operations on my legs. And any stylist or anybody who works in, you know, any kind of styling-related practice 
knows that, um, you know, reveal, conceal. So I will reveal and conceal. That's why unless, if you, if I ever got run over, like no one would ever see my legs unless I was under a bus. And if I am, please put my skirt down because my legs are really tapestry. They've actually had, I've had a lot of operations on my veins because I've worked on concrete floors my whole life. And I also have, um, you know, I, five years ago I used to have to inject myself for deep vein thrombosis because I used to travel a lot. So I just have, you know, I call them tapestry legs. I mean, they're legs and they're wonderful because they work. But that's why I've just always, everyone's like, even the man at the petrol station the other day, I got out, paid for my car and he's like, wow, where are you going? I was like, I'm going home for tea and toast. What are you doing? But I think the maxi says says to people, what's going on here? Um, But volume does that, doesn't it? If you were to have, which is why I love doing big curtains. I'll show you in my bedroom um, when we leave. I've just put in these very big curtains because... um, it's a room that I'm trying to put a bathtub in and make it its own little world in a room. And what you do when you cram things into a space that's not overly large is you need one big grand gesture. So a curtain with taffeta trim is just the biggest grand gesture, and I'll show it to you. Wearing uh, voluminous skirts or maxis for me is just a way to say, don't look at my legs. It's all up here. <laughs> <laughs> it's shoulders. Yeah, it's... but, you know, I love neck. I, I also love necks. I love, um, you know, when I style people, I always... I always think I try and teach them a little bit about Alexander technique, which is where you imagine from the back of your head. I imagine Hare Krishna or you know some lovely guru pulling your ponytail up, and so you you get sort of bum in, not necessarily boobs up, but you get chin down, but you get a really beautiful alignment, which is your natural alignment, which is how we're all born. And I think sometimes fashion doesn't let you do that. So most of the things I like um, in fashion. Not that I, you know, not that there's a category of Alexander Technique fashion-related items, but for me, they're all about, you know, natural poise and showing, not even neck, but you know, mm. and I love fingers too. So I love hands because I used to play the piano and I've got long fingers. And my only grooming I really do is get my nails done, and um, which is why I've got my nail polish out now to do mine because I haven't had time to get it done. But that's why I love rings. Mm. But I would never wear, um, you know, I've got a theory. It's just a theory of like relativity to me if you've got bad legs cover them you'll have you know even the volume of a skirt even if your waist isn't amazing with a belt in the illusion of a waist so reveal conceal and then diversion and that's why i will never wear jewelry around my neck because um you know i'm like i grew up in queensland i like put refoil on even now <laughs> i'm not the most pc sun person <laughs> i'm gonna be that old lady on red leaf in oh, her like worry. South American cosy when oh. she shouldn't, uh, because you know I I love I love vitamin D and I love being in the sun and hearing water, so um, I will never put necklaces on unless I have a turtleneck uh, mm. because I'll always want all the action down here. So I figure you know we are vases, we dress as a vase, we yeah. dress as a house of vase, but grand gestures all the time. It's the stylist cheap thing when people see. And Maxi, people think, oh, it's so clever. I'm like, God, no, it's like tracksuits. It's the easiest thing ever. It just does the job. You don't even have to brush your hair. So when you said you style people, do mm. people come to you and ask you to put yeah, their well, looks we, together? Yeah, no. We, um, when we shoot people, we try and bring them things that they probably wouldn't have chosen themselves. And uh, I have a really gorgeous friend called Heidi Moore, Heidi Moore Gill. And she, just before, when was it, about five, six years ago, she said, Megan Morton, you're just like a, just a collision. You're just a mess because I loved everything and I hadn't really found what I liked specifically because I just was a lover of all things. 
Um, and she drew me the most beautiful illustrations. And they're at work, so I can't show, show you them. But she drew me as, um, you know, like a illustration. And she showed me the shapes. And she said, this is your birthday present. And I was just gobsmacked how perfect they were. So I laminated them. <laughs> and they are in my work bag. And whenever I go shopping, I think, does this fit into this silhouette? Mm. Yes or no? So it's like a system for dressing. And it's basically just, you know, if you've got a... Um, a full waist you need a smaller top it's like anything like boys when they have really baggy bottoms you wear a little fitted top and when you've got a baggy top you can go skinnier jean and mm. just you know go see a bit of silhouette so I, mean, for, I think for so many people listening to this mm. who have followed you or just discovering you the well, idea I just of, think what's this maniac talking about <laughs> who like, is this woman collaging and maxi no I, I mean it, it's it makes sense there's there's there is a, a there is a cohesive theory that that's at play but I was going to ask you about mm. where it all began because, yeah. you know, how did you get your start? How did you come from the banana plantation to, you know, working in this capacity in Glamorous Sydney? So I was a very naughty teenager. And um, because my mum was a school teacher and sort of an assistant principal, it was just not great in our house given my behaviours. So what would happen is the naughtier I was, uh, the more I would be sent to Sydney to my gorgeous grandmother. And I'm one of 18 grandkids. And when you're the naughty person from a big Catholic family and you're sent down, your grandmother doesn't scold you. She says, oh, come here, my <laughs> lovely naughty person. Let me take you to David Jones. And we get on the bus and we go to David Jones and I'd look at the plaster ceilings and I would just be in heaven. So I would just be naughtier and naughtier and naughtier until I was almost sent to her, you know. I lived with her when I was um, very, very young, and I lived with her as a before we moved to Queensland. So, sort of, she is she's. I mean, she's my grandma, but she's my definite sort of mother figure. So, what's naughty? Like going around with boys, no, fucking up school, just really naughty, just like obscene, breaking things, just being a total rat bag. Okay. Um, but I was lucky. Well, my parents, I think, saw what was happening, and they sent me on an exchange student to America to California which was really smart of them because everybody was like, what, you're going to California? I'm like, I know, right, how easy? It's just basically Queensland, but bigger, <laughs> which is true, the, the sun and the, the lifestyle. And so I came back and I decided that I would come live with my grandma, who, who I loved, and I would just work at Dolly. And I told that to my parents. And instead of them going, well, how are you going to do that? They went, honey, that sounds like such a great idea. I think that's a wonderful idea. Let's see what we can do to make it happen. And so I caught the Greyhound bus down with my friend Kelly. And I said to her, look, I'm probably going to work at Dolly. And she was like, really? I was like, yeah. Um, why don't you just work at Cleo? And she was like, okay. <laughs> so we just invented this, This, you know, we got motivated. We got on the bus. We said goodbye to our friends. We gave ourselves a really big party. And um, we lived with my grandma. We what got age a job. Was this? Oh, how old was I? I had my 18th birthday at Dolly, so maybe I was 17. It was after I came back from America. Um, and we, yeah, we got a job. We both got jobs at waitresses at this horrible place in the city next door to the George Street Cinema. And it was so wonderful, though, because, you know, I just thought it was hilarious. And we worked all night there. And then we went to, I went to Dolly, I think, the week after. I just got my you know, worked out where everything was and how to get around. And I went into Dolly to Marina Go, who was the editor, and I said, 
I know you don't know me, but I would so love a job here. And she said, there are no jobs. And I said, well, why don't I just see what I can do? And I literally worked there for a year. And I waitressed for a year all through the night. And I had the best time ever. I couldn't even believe there was an office where everybody who made Dolly was there. And so all my friends, you know, it was just a wonderful time. I just thought, I mean, we'd go, oh, my God, it was heaven. It was like free tampons, Keanu Reeves on a weeknight and <laughs> just movies forever. I was just in heaven. I could not even believe it. So I think after about a year, and I loved Marina and she was a beautiful boss and Lisa Wilkinson at the time was editing Cleo and Rochelle Unreich was the deputy and I was you know, the coordinator for the Dolly Doctor and at the time I invented a thing called Dolly Club and Dolly Club in my mind was a way, because I'd been, when you are not from Sydney or not in the in crowd you do have an understanding and you're you're a real stare bear because you you can watch how it all works you're not in it but you're outside it thinking what's going on here and so I invented Dolly Club because I felt like there was not just you know there was me's all over the all over Australia people who didn't live um, in Sydney or Melbourne and who didn't have parents who were cool or even scientists who were just you know um, and they all read Dolly so we started the Dolly Club as a $5 price of admission um, and it went gangbusters so everybody sent in $5 I used to open up literally people would send it in foil and you know oh, <laughs> it was adorable and some people would send coins in because it's you know $5 back then was a lot and the Dolly Club was just the most beautiful thing and the you know I decided it was the reason for my life and I would be the Dolly Club president forever and so when the Dolly Club I guess started making ways in the commercial sense because then we had we basically had a double page spread in each magazine that of course if you hadn't paid your five dollars you could also read because a magazine but that was the genius of Dolly Club that it was inclusive in such a um, yeah a way that people who didn't usually feel that specifically included really did feel included mm. we had badges we had actually I met a girl um, I met a girl a year ago and she had a Dolly Club badge I just like it was like synesthesia. I just went back to like all the thoughts that sitting at that desk thinking I was the luckiest person in the whole of Australia to be sitting at the Dolly Club desk sending these badges out. So Dolly was really my big, you know, my big thing. And after a year working there for free, um, Marina, I think the coordinator moved on or I don't know, something happened. And I think it was probably illegal for them not to give me a paid job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so after that, um, the the commercial business upstairs said, we love what you've done with Dolly Club. We would like to, we'd like you to look at Clio, Cosmo, Gourmet Traveller, Wheels Magazine, and you know we started a whole business unit. It was called Heaven on Eleven. That was our name for it, and it was the eleventh floor of ACP Publishing. And I worked under a fantastic uh, marketing director called Judy Keenan, who taught me everything. And then I worked alongside a fantastic girl called Linda Brown and Bruna Robwell, and they were really. Um, the sort of the girls who knew everything about direct marketing, which was just then like knowing about the internet and coding. It was mm. just, you know, you're the queen bees. And we started all these really beautiful clubs that made um, readership feel closer together and inclusive and all those other gorgeous things, which is really what we try and do at the school. Yes. Make these things feel like they are for everybody and they're democratic offerings that even though these people are highly gifted, that they are happy to share with you in the fullest way possible. So I feel like the Dolly Club just comes up and up again which is all based on sharing and joy you know the join the simple things like have a dolly club badge go us you know come learn how to macrame or make your child's name in wire work have the best time ever you know was that uh 
late 80s, early 90s? Like when? Yeah, it was in the 80s. I'd done a marketing, a, I'd done a marketing degree at, at Passmore's because I, I felt like I needed to have some kind of qualification but didn't want to go to uni. And what I took out from that was that a good business plan relied purely on people and humans. You know, the, the, the whole idea too that today everyone talks about is a product offering right, is the price offering right? And I think that's all, it is important, but it's almost periphery. It's if you can actually touch and move and inspire someone, does that make some, it is, and that's what I think you build a business on. Is this actually going to really help somebody? Is this a benefit to them outside of, you know, the, the advertised outcome? And if so, is what what is the price to entry for that? Is is that too cheap? Is that too expensive? And I think that's how you do things. I mean, I you know when people say, oh, I invented this business on the back of a napkin and I didn't do any business plan. I sometimes think, oh, come on, that's just not diligent. So I always thought about the school in terms of um, do a business plan that was simple, beyond you know go above and beyond the back of a napkin, but but base it on the idea that when people um, are inspired by the humans, they, of course, want to, you know, they, of course they want to buy into that. Mm. So that's how the school's born. Same thing as do- the Dolly Club, you know. They're so, just fun girls. Be the fun girls, not the mean girls. Well, how did you then go, what was the, the next major stop-off on your journey post-Dolly? Yeah, so um, I, I, was, I had two children really close together. My eldest two are... 14 months apart they call them Irish twins <laughs> <laughs> silly enough um, and I just decided that I launched El Cuisine for um, Hachette which was a very beautiful food publication that was just probably too early for its time and Tony Asnes had done for me the most beautiful party he'd taken over an industrial state and planted cabbage heads like a thousand cabbage heads and that was our party and I just felt it was such a momentous sort of late 80s thing to leave on it just felt like you know, I don't know if you've ever walked into a um, industrial estate with a thousand cabbage heads, but the smell is kind of amazing. <laughs> and this new magazine that that was, you know, simplistic in its recipes, but beautiful in its styling, like it just felt like the thing to leave on. And so that party was, I think, on the Wednesday, and I had the baby the following Wednesday, uh, my first baby. And during that time, I was at home. I lived across the road from the names agency. A big agent and I had been styling things because I had just loved always wanted to do it and the real reason I took on the job at L as a you know as a marketing director was because I secretly wanted to do L decoration in Australia and was that had that was that around then no okay. it was um it was part of Hachette's plans and well sort of ironically I was because I was the marketing head I had to commission some research um quantitative and qualitative that talked about what magazine does Australians you know want to read and because at the time back then we were the highest consumer of magazines in the world it was you know we're really hot market for it and I had to deliver the news that actually El Decoration would be a great one but the the real thing that Australians wanted was El Cuisine or a a food magazine Mm. um and so that was sort of bittersweet because I'd always I was always secretly hoping I could do something with our decoration. So, as in, you would be the editor of? Well, no, I just wanted to contribute in some way, and maybe mm. I'd, I'd start, you know, as the market editor or something that was from the ground up again. But it really happened when um, I, I had a small body of styling work that I'd done because I had commissioned stylists, so I understood what the art buying process was, um, and I'd had a small body of work, and I took it across the road to the agent, sort of on one of those trolleys that you take, you know 
like you know those trolleys that you carry your suitcase on yeah. like all my magazines of my favorite magazines in this person I turned up and I had all my favorite like Spanish and El Decoration and Architectural Digest like tagged and I think they were like what you've done all this I was like oh no I'm just showing you the stuff I like they're like what are you I was like wow I'm just really into you know um, and there was a beautiful man Richard Bailey who has since uh, passed unfortunately he was their major fashion talent at the time and I think just by pure chance he needed someone the week after to do some atmospheres for him and I worked on a, a whole lot of you know jobs uh, with him so and he's I, a I really, photographer he, yeah Richard Bailey was the best photographer in Australia and he wanted you to create well yeah he didn't want me he just needed someone to do some kind of atmospheric stuff that was beyond the fashion because he worked for the fashion stylist um, you know he had his crew going but so he just needed someone to do air we call it air because the air you make on a set is the same air that you can make in a house in a kid's room, in all that kind of so stuff, or atmosphere. Designing, a, designing the yeah, space. Yeah, doing the set. Mm. Um, and so we worked on that, and I just thought that was wonderful. I felt I felt like it was my true calling, doing really big sets and organising big things. And because I'd had a marketing background, I knew I knew how to run things, I guess, on a spreadsheet, but as well as talk to the, the left and right brain. And most, most really successful stylists are not purely fairy heads. Like they, you know... They know how to balance a spreadsheet. They know what $5,000 $5, will get them as far as sets. You know, like you're pretty good on it because you have to be, you know, I find too most um, really epic starters have been other things in past life. So because I was a marketing director in a past life, I had a really good idea about money and, and, you know, what a target market wants and how to find out how to get it through internal processes. Glenn Probe still, who's a beautiful, beautiful stylist now in New York, was an ex, um, you know, visual merchandiser for Maya because you know you have to come through the rope somehow. There's never you're never really born a stylist. You're made one, but there's a few things along the way I think that can help you open your mind to the um, the sort of being flexible and forever saying yes. You know, it's a certain type of person who can go, oh, you want a pink elephant on Tuesday? Let me get back to you on that one. Instead of, <laughs> oh my bloody God, or no, no, no. Or say yes effusively, you know, because you know it's not necessarily possible, but yeah. you've just got to go back. And that's we why I think We do it's have a purple hippopotamus. Yeah, or mm. we do have a, a, a green one that might be able to be tinged orange if we shoot it in a red room and counterbalance the colours, you know, all those sorts of... So it really is styling, styling decorating, anything um, that is under the disciplines we work in is really intentional and motivated like we're always trying to get something it's not just oh the air's beautiful here or look at this accident nothing's accidental it's always highly motivated but it always has a um a purpose so when you were working with that meeting with richard bailey mm. was that mid-90s yeah so he was doing very very he had a beautiful studio called studio 24 down in piermont he was working with the best of the best and i would just do you know really soft things for him and i felt like that gave me a lot of um, credentials in the advertising world. I used to do Country Road, early 80s, 90s. I, I got they a lot of... the Country yes. Road golden years. Well, you know, the beautiful thing about that is when you go overseas to meet magazine editors to show them your work now and, and show them house pictures from Australian architects and designers, it's amazing. They still always have... It might be hidden in the corner or it might be still in their, you know, coastal tone tear sheet book, but they will have the that gorgeous, you know early 90s country road seafoam towel 
hanging off the driftwood picture. For us, it's nothing because it's just like, what? That's even my kid could do that. But for them, because it's in such a, you know, English setting or a, you know, it looks as unique as it did back then. So mm. I think context is everything. That's why Australians make really beautiful, you know, stylus, and which is why we're kind of wanted the world over because we do come to it with an inherent um, good life quality. You know, yeah. our, our driftwood is, you know, to us is nothing, but to everybody else can look quite exotic yeah. in the right context, totally. you know, with the right skill. Well, did you um, have any key influences or mentors in that time that took you under their wing and really game yeah. changed? Back, at, um, back in the days of magazines, you know, obviously Lisa Wilkinson and Marina Go and all the girls who worked under them, you know, Mia Friedman, Paula Joy, it was really the, you know, the, the good girl club. There were so many women, um, young girls, doing amazing things and kind of cross they were just across everything um i also worked with a lady uh where i grew up is called um pimpama was called pimpama it's now called um willow vale um and a lady who lived she was an ex i think sydney or melbourne woman she had um bought a farm there like a llama farm or something she was my parents friend and she was a decorator to a lot of the japanese people in surface paradise and I used to go into the office babysit the kids help her out order curtains order furnishings things like leather Roman blinds in white you know I remember that order like wow these people are ordering a lot of leather blinds how does that even work you know you can kind of imagine how gross that would have been in surface paradise <laughs> development high rise but you know she had a really fantastic business and made a lot of money and I just sort of sat there and I used to look around and I used to think wow she's doing all of this from one tiny office, she has her family here, she has her llamas, she sort of has this best of both worlds. I don't know if she was trained as a decorator. She, um, she was a very, very smart businesswoman. I always accredit her to just clicking something over in my head about not just doing it for the fun, but doing it because you can then have a llama farm. Yeah. <laughs> I do not have a llama farm or, or anything like that, but not that I want that. But I just, for me, it felt like something, you know, to work was also to... Um, you know, to be, to, to be entrepreneurial in a, in a short way. Her husband was, I think he'd had a stroke and I think she was looking after the family and the house. God, I hope he didn't. Anyway, in mm. my head, she was kind of the powerhouse of the family. And she gave me the idea that you could both be happy and have a really good life, but also have a good business, which I think people think are not mutually exclusive. I think this idea that you have to be, have it all, but be savage or, you know, only have, you know, one child if you want to have a huge business and travel the world. And I think, you know, hopefully that's a thing of the past now. You can really be everywhere. So that brings me to talking about your process now. And your, you do, do you work with your partner? Yeah. So Giles, uh, we have a photo studio and a props house and the school, obviously. I, I only direct the school as far as the classes and we develop classes we think people might love. But apart from that, it's run by another part of our office. We kind of have like, um, do you remember the Brady Bunch scene where the brothers were fighting and they put the sticky tape down the middle of the room? <laughs> yes. Greg and what's his name? Um, I forget the other brother. Anyway, the office is kind of like that uh, because for a, a long time, Giles and I just weren't in the zone of working together. And Giles and I would throw mangoes at each other's head, you know, in front of people at the office. And it was a little bit... Brady Bunch. And so we put some masking tape down and Giles has his people and I have my people and we only cross with one whip. Okay. And the other people in the business will talk to each other. Not not for us. Uh, and we're now in a really beautiful, harmonious way that, um, you know, boundaries are really... Uh, are, are, 
present. Present, ever present, and really respected. And um, I don't even see him half the time at work. People say, oh my God, how do you work with your husband? And I say back, how do I not? Like, we have three kids together. We have really busy work life. We have big traveling schedule. Um, we and, and two, we, we like to do stuff. We don't, like, sit around and just wait for the work week. We like to do stuff if there's... You know, we, we make up three-day weekends when we can just get away with it. We will pull the kids out of school if we if we think it's, you know, going to work. We try and send them wherever they, you know, we just try and be those yes people. Because I think otherwise you just sit at home and you might as well go work mm. at the bank. Which sometimes I think about too, you know, I could do that. Just be a different, I just come at it at a different angle so the only way for me is to really work with him because it's so nice to have the one person that you love the most in the world just sort of in your blind side mm. what um when you say travel schedule mm. where do you go and what does that look like so this paul calling which is a terrible hey paulo can i give you a call back that up anyway um so the traveling schedule this year is pretty full-on but we want to i want to ramp it up this year i feel like last year we we took the school to new york which was huge success we made you know we've got such a great business um in terms of a lot of people around the world know us for the school stuff mm. but um you know styling's changing and workloads are changing so what i've dedicated this year to is um trying to get to as many places as possible for the next bout of inspiration so in three weeks time we go to japan we're going to japan with olympus because i want to learn how to make video and olympus's headquarters is is in japan they're having a birthday so we're traveling with some olympus friends but i also want to look at taking the school some specific classes to japan and i just know that having you know smaller spaces different ideas about what is good i need to be there to kind of suss out there's no point me saying extreme knitting with its nearly two meter long knitting needles is going to go to japan and no one can actually even fit in the room Mm. um we are going to new york again because we had such a great time last year with the school so we'll do a very very special class a one-off class at the end of the year we've got um extreme knitting hopefully going to milan at the Mm. end of the year we have robin holt's small business class going to london because we have a lot of English friends who um, probably get their craft from other places in London, but we felt the small business discipline might be a good one to show them. So when you say going to, do you take students there with you? Um, Well, we offer the opportunity if people did want to fly from there because we do have a lot of people flying to Sydney for classes, but this is more for, you know, the Robin Holt class. We'll we'll just take uh, Robin as the teacher and then some of our staff and then we'll offer it over to an English market. So you're... uh people who would find out about that and attend are they following you on social and... yeah on social and on the website and we just you know we have quite a a gorgeous group of you know the instagram community for the school and our database is just gorgeous and lovely and mm. i just find that they want if they had a good time or they got some real breakthroughs with it they'll obviously want their you know best friends across the pond to do it too yes. so it's it's such a it's such a tiny business but it's so potent because it's um it's based really on old-fashioned principles. It's total word of mouth. The school doesn't have a marketing budget. 
we spend all our time, you know, trying to get to the things we need to to make everybody's time there really comfortable. Um, it's like you sort of run a hotel. You've got to make it so great for the time they're there, mm. bump it out for the next person because the school space itself is only, it only really, the beauty of it is it only really happens when people turn up. Um, when people aren't there or a class isn't on, the school space itself is a photo studio, which is white and void and nothing. So the beautiful thing is, everyone says, oh, is this the school? I'm like, yeah, I know, right? How amazing. There's nothing here, not even a chair. And that's what I love about it. The idea that it is a vacant block ready for the teacher's immersive you know, techniques and all that beautiful absorption and then all the rest we do is really intentional for the, you know, for the maximising the, the student's experience at the class. So what I love about styling is and why I think only stylists can really do it because no one else would be bothered really. It's, you know, a lot of people who do workshops or classes leave their rooms set up because it's too much to set it up. But every time we do a class, I want people to see something totally new. Mm. So if they've come to a couple of classes, I would hate to think that they would have the same view of the chair or the same mantelpiece arrangement or the same tear sheets on the wall. So I'm really like a Nazi about that. And I think that that's what makes the school ever changing and ever moving and not just about one thing too, because we go from indigo to styling to small business to, you know, extreme knitting, which we only ever uh, present as white and ivory, you know, so it's such Mm. a mixed bag of, um, looks and and every teacher's got their own you know styling predisposition so it's it's all about keeping that moving and keeping it beautiful always beautiful so well speaking of blocks do you have anything that would be the stylist equivalent of a writer's block where you just oh my god all the time oh my god some days some days i wake up and i think this is it let me add a mantelpiece now i can like feel it in my waters so to speak and i just just will do everything you know then other days I just think I know this is going to be struggle street which is why after years of battling with that is it now is it because I ate meat last night did I not go to yoga enough you know thinking there was a recipe for you know styling success what I've realized is the more you do it like anything you build your styling muscle up and to do it every day even if you're not paid to or you're not acknowledged publicly is is beautiful and that's that's why i love styling the more you do it the more you get better the bigger things you take on it's just it's just this bottomless beautiful learning pit which you can never say stop at which is why people love people call it faffing people call it styling people call it whatever they want but at the end of the day every culture in society every age group has had a go at it you know i I also watch too a lot of people um will let their daughters, little girls' rooms, styling headquarters, isn't it? I mean, my God, if you've looked under, you know, cute kids' rooms on Instagram, you'll just see pages of pink and blue and and all this gorgeous stuff. And then you see boys, and there's a certain age, I even noticed with my son, where, and it's not styling, it's displaying becomes a no-no. And I think that really robs anybody of, you know, so I try and get, I don't want my son to style his room, but I want him to be, knowing and to be looking for things and say hey should that be there because a lot of times people go oh it's a boy he doesn't really need to worry yeah. i look at the work of ghost patrol and he did this gorgeous piece at hugo michelle gallery and it was about the ideal you know the teenager's bedroom and why we forget that as adults and why we forget that is because it looks messy or arty or it doesn't look cool or it's not what society says is a beautiful room but the idea that you know i think that's probably um you know what my mum and dad 
really let me have a go at was just make it I mean there was a chicken under my bed and it was quite rural and a bit scary at times but essentially I was decoupaging and collaging Hero Magazine and Stuart Membry on anything I could because I loved the idea of cut and paste Mm. and cut and paste is really what stylists do at a bare basic level and then obviously the exquisite stuff comes with more refinement Mm. but it's basically cutting and pasting you're taking a Gucci skirt putting it with a lesser top matching it a belt from Afghanistan and a ribbon from France or you're doing a table from cult you're doing a bench from the fleas you're doing you know it's cut and pasting well we've got to wrap up fairly soon but I want to ask a couple of quick questions about well I just noticed the school embraced social yes seemingly or Negan Morton embraced social before anyone else in that space seemed to how has that changed with time what is your you know what is the ethos behind the building mm. of because your Instagram feed is never never seems to cease and it always goes into interesting stuff well god if we I, I feel like we've I've always been that way if there was an audience I would tell them everything I knew if there if even if I had one person at Tropicana I'd say hey come look at this amazing book you know I love I just love sharing things that I'm really into so I feel like a lot of people are um, I don't know they anyone who is verbose or who is naturally cool with sharing on Instagram some some people think it's so um, it's over the top or it's verbose but we've always been like that we just now happen to have this megaphone medium if anybody came to my house on the weekend and wanted to know what we were reading I would give it to them because I love it and I feel like Instagram lets us do that which is why I try and you know, I try and talk about books. I try and talk about things that are happening politically or socially that I'm really disturbed by or that I really would want support over. I just try and keep it changing because I think a stylist view is not just about styling, is it? You're kind of, you're, you're trying to make your art, if, if you could let it be called that, you're trying to let it reflect what's happening. And if you are listening and reading high and low and you've got your ears and your eyes out, you're just a better informed person, right? You're a better informed mm. human. Like mm. no matter what you do, if you're a stylist or a doctor or a dentist, you just be you just have more to talk about. And I think the more you learn about other things, just the the, the more you know. You know that beautiful Aboriginal saying, the more you know the less you need? Mm-hmm. So it kinda counter it it really is a counter to styling. Whereas in styling, well it's true. In styling the more you know, the less props you need. But people don't want you to turn up with three things, do they? They're mm. paying you to turn up to bring the magic. But even if I bought a hundred things to set tomorrow, I know fully well that these three things here will be the power things. Yeah. Because I've been doing it for a long time and my brain is in tune with the visual values of things and what, you know, that's why styling, people think stylists have to have a big property or they have to have really expensive things like my you know my feature incense burner that I brought out just for you today bloody blah blah but really it's about understanding why things have a visual value and a visual presence and what happens when you make them jump into bed with another thing of opposite value or similar value and how you can build that and make that into something so unspeakably beautiful that someone you know wants to tear shit your page or pin it I always used to think about my magazine work because I worked at Inside Outs um, you know very early on and it was actually one of my big breaks is that I wanted someone in magazine land who used to pay a loading to be next door to an, 
an editorial page. And I always thought I wanted my page to be so worth paying the loading for. So if Mr. Advertiser wanted to sit next to my beautiful story, I would really hope he felt that it was a good value. And in my head, that's who I'd be doing it for. Like for me, you know, I wanted the work to be good and I wanted the story to make sense and the narrative to be clear. But I also thought I want that air to be so beautiful that someone actually wants to sit by side, side by side with me or make their, their ad look better given its, mm. given its neighbor. Do you have... Uh, is there a zeitgeist of trend that you tap into that you can read coming around the corner? Oh, I saw that coming a mile yeah, away. Yeah, I, I often I often write things down, but then you just become like an I told you so person. So mm. I just try and sit with it. And in my head, I feel like I know where things are going because not because of anything else, but the pendulum swing that is trend-based forecasting. And if you had a look at, if you just took, for example, one that everyone can see, you know, even my, you know, my farmer dad could see, minimal and all that John Pawson excruciatingly beautiful reduction obviously gives way to maximal over the top I beat the Moroccan Indian, you know. And obviously where then commerce sits is somewhere in the middle. So it takes eight to ten years for an interior interior pendulum to really swing. And so if you looked at where we are now, we've got this beautiful hybrid of both reductive and and additional because we've had minimal and maximal in our lives. Um, so then we're sitting in this rather meaningless middle ground. So if you look at that as the cul-de-sac of where we are now, it has to do a U-turn and get back out again, doesn't it? So what what do you foresee? Well, I think things are coming small and minute. I think we're, you know, for me, when I, um, when I love somebody and if I had more time from yesterday, because I do love you, I would have got you one. I go and I cut all the rosemary bush and I put beautiful French Christian Dior vintage ribbon around it and I give you a bustle of rosemary because you put it in your shower Mm. and you shower under it actually it's like the most it's better than a diptych candle it's so beautiful I don't know if there's one in my shower now but I'll show you on the way out Um, I feel like small gestures that are meaningful are the new big thing isn't Mm. it like how do we show anyone our love or appreciation how do we show anything Time is tight, money is tight, everybody is so under the demands of what it is just to exist and live that these really small things, I think, go a long way, which is why magazines like Kinfolk, which are really repackaged versions of Grassroots or any of those sort of how-to magazines, Mm. um, are the new way forward because we're showing people really simple, simple things but just done excruciatingly beautifully or done at a level that we don't see them normally. So the notion of time is tight is mm. a, a good way to sort of head towards the wrap-up because I know that a lot of people would love to embrace more elements of styling in their lives but feel like it's something they can't even begin to get their head around. And also, which also leads me to say, what advice would you give to someone who wanted to go into the field that you're in? Oh my God, I love Megan Morton's work. I really want to do what she does. But right now I'm working in an accounting firm and I am desperately yeah. unhappy. Um... How can you, how can, first up, how can one get more style in their life? You just, I always say to people, when people come to our science of styling class and we say, who wants to be a stylist so badly they can't even breathe anymore? They put their hands up and I say, you lawyers, doctors, bankers, neurosurgeons, and most of them are, or are you in an office just dealing with left brain? And then I give them examples of all the great girls that I have hired and worked with that are only ex-lawyers you know my best assistant ever was a HIV AIDS nurse from the Darlinghurst Hospice 
because um, most stylists don't need another one of them. They need a person who can fill their gaps and be that left brain person. If you can work with someone in that capacity, then you can work out why you don't want to be them as well as how you can work with someone like that. Does that make sense? Mm. So I think work experience is just ideal. And God, I do work experience with someone now, even at my age, because I just think learning is just so wonderful and it doesn't stop and it keeps you really agile and nimble and to, you know, be in anyone's shoes for a day or a week. We would take anyone on if they, you know, said, I really want to learn. We take people on too. Like when someone says, when someone sends us an intern application and says, I had my three children by age 21, I am an accountant, blah, blah, blah. We say, we want you because you want it so badly. I know you would because you've had your three kids and you, you know, you're an ex-accountant. Of course, you're going to really absorb it. You know, Loretta was our intern who had sent that on her application and she ended up working with us, you know, paid up three years and now she's an interior designer. I feel like two people from the other world have a lot to offer people on Mm. this side of the fence. But, you know, good styling is just always based on beauty. But behind the beauty, there is maths. And behind the maths, there is a person who is an ex-accountant or has worked at the bank or has worked in government on project management or has worked in, you know, talent agency or whatever they want or is a neurosurgeon. You know, my one of my friends is a, um, a beautiful florist and he, yeah, is not florally trained because he just loves Dutch masters so much he can replicate them in his sleep because he's put his 100,000 hours into it. Styling is a bit like that. The more you do it, the easier it becomes, the less slippery it gets as a notion. When people say, I want to be a stylist so much, and I say, what are you doing on your mantelpiece? They say, well, I don't have one. I'm like, but anything's a mantelpiece. The top of your fridge is a mantelpiece. Your bedside table's a mantelpiece. I used to hire a little white... um, upright piano every house I moved to the piano hire a guide like you could bought this thing out three times over I'm like no no no, I don't want to own it we don't play the piano (laughs) but it was my way because I had a house full of young kids and I didn't want to be that person saying don't touch anything in here this is my styling bit Mm. the top of the piano they couldn't reach it it looked ambiguous enough it could easily just fit into a room so every house I was in I just would move this piano around until I gave it back I don't need one here because, you know, I have enough mental pieces. And two, in this house, I don't want it to be a styling house. I just want it to be a house where my kids live and we all have nice times. You know, I don't want it to be burdened by there's its styling spot. But for a long time when I was getting my styling muscle up, I would just literally every day just do something else and I'd just watch where the flowers work and I'd watch what happens when I put two of the same things there or remove one and it's how I got my eye for it. Or it's how I fine-tuned it. Yeah, good one. Well, to finish up, if I were to check in with you in a year's time, mm. is there any key project that you're really amped about that you could say, if I bumped into you on the street in yes. a year, you'd say, I've done it. I've done my well, next big thing. let's put it out there because it's not, it doesn't happen unless you actually fess up. Do um, I have no reason to believe this is going to happen financially, practically, or you know, even metaphorically, but I'm going to put it out there seeing you asked. I had a very beautiful Easter down at Mullumbimby for the Blues Fest, which is where I take my uh, older kids. Every year we go to the Blues Fest because there's not many things that your older teenage kids will let you pay, you know, that you can make them go on apart from skiing, uh, you know, expensive holidays or Blues Fest. So I had a really blissful time down there because my friends lived down there and I just decided that I was going to build a 
kit home. I was going to try and get some architectural refinement in Myokum or somewhere in that general area and just grow cherry blossoms and um, only plant white flowers. But try and reduce a little bit from coming from my really big house with all of the the gorgeousness that is a big house to this house now, which is really a, a vessel for living at the beach and going to the library in, thinking, can I skinny it down even more to something that literally has a bed with the loveliest linen on it, an espresso, a stovetop espresso, a big fridge so you can just cook out of your, you know, your beautiful kitchen garden. Like, can I actually reduce life even further uh, and not have all the things that, you know, obviously still hang on to a few things here. You know, I just want to see how far I can push that. And I guess having, you know, kids who can now help me build a house and dig holes and I want them to know that food comes from the garden, not from 1-800-SUPPER-TIME. <laughs> you know, my son has a lot of friends who just have, you know, money left under their fruit bowl every night and they literally ring a delivery service and that upsets me more than anything. But in the same way, uh, you know, that's a very simple way of saying I also want them to know that you build things, you know, to last and you build things for beauty. You don't just, you know, trash things. And I think that that might be a lovely family project that we could do. Mm. Like I only have almost one and a half bedrooms, so it doesn't become the the resort or the, you know, you have to still pitch a tent outside. You have to, so you've got water, you've got air, you've got sunshine, you've got all that beautiful ecosystem and yeah, white plants. To finish up, you mentioned something to me which didn't come up mm. organically in the conversation about how you got your book written by changing the time of day that you oh, yeah. worked. And I thought that'd be a lovely thing yeah, to end on. because that's to, a great one. To me, it symbolizes just how ingenious you are at changing the framework through which to view the situation to find a creative mm. solution. So I don't even know how it came up, but I was talking to you about a, a, a creative advice or something, a, a yeah. tip you would well, give. Well, a lot of people too I hear, and, and I've only sort of realize this manifest because people say to me but how can I do it I've got to get up and do the kids and then I go to my nursing job and then my husband blah 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 no matter who you are or what situation you live in or you know whether you're mortgage free or or renting everyone is faced with the same day when you live in a city or you live in you know mainstream Australia you we're all faced with the same stresses one person's million dollars is one person's ten dollars you know so stress is stress no matter what so I always say, but you've just got to value what's important to you. And, and what was important to me at the time writing my book was that I gave it really my best. Like not a stylist just writing stuff that felt like captions, just I wanted to go sort of, you know, deeper because I, um, dyslexic as a kid, writing for me was a big, you know, achievement and a mark of it's, it's how, you know, I got my mother to love love you know be interested in me again really because I could write and I used to keep words I found fascinating you know in those old A to Z uh phone like phone indexes mm. your mum and dad used to write the <laughs> you know D for Dan yeah um I used to collect words in mm. one of those and I collect wow. it and keep it because one I love the rhythmic of the word or I'd love the why of you know I just love the way words looked and so I'd think okay how can I use that and when I first started writing I would plant a word as my trigger because I thought how does anyone get anything done how does how does a writer start it's so autobiographical you can't one way a writer starts is another way a writer you know can't start so I thought if I have one word that I love or that I'm fascinated enough that that suits my tone 
I will start with that in the middle and then I'll literally, so I write quite visually, so I'll have a whiteboard and I'll write in the middle and I'll write, write surrounding words and then I'll piece them together. And how I started before I got my, I guess I, I before my writer woke in me, is I would start with the middle and then write a beginning sentence and an end sentence because I felt in magazine publishing that was really beyond the glossy pictures, that was probably the most powerful thing you could do. And so I used to get you know quite quick at doing that but then with the book you obviously have to go down a whole other level and none of those tricks or gimmicks for fast fixes work so what I did was I would get up really 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 early and I would think to myself um, one of my yoga teachers used to say even if I am teaching I will I want to beat the dawn Mm. and he would sit in a chair and he would wait for the sun so he would be there before the sun Mm. and anyone who has kids or a household that is really busy understands the um the huge advantage you have if you wake up before your kids you are just like right i am on top of all of you you're all going to get lovely sandwiches today and everyone's going to go up happy rather than oh my god the little buggers have woken up before me and now the day is done and i'm going to be late for everything so i had such great success with that with the family life and writing that now what i do um that was years ago now what i do is i have months where i just wake up early and go to bed really early and then i swap it out where i have months that i wake up really really late and go to bed well past 1 one thirty. okay because for me like anything if you do it for a long period of time it becomes your normal and you're not grabbing anything extra out of it but if you actually go oh my god body's in shock body's in revolt mind's in overdrive i'm now like you know literally writing at the time when every great writer's ever written between midnight and one thirty. Oh my god you know and i love it too because obviously with the time difference you get a whole lot of blog action yeah. you read a whole lot of different news feeds when you're up at one thirty, but it's not sustainable and you don't want it to be because then you become a maniac who you know like that story i was telling you earlier about the person who gets up too early but you know you want it to be exciting and you want it to be only temporary because then you can hang on to it and you can keep it going. And then obviously on holidays, and I do block out time in the diary that has got um, time where we are just normal, <laughs> you know, standard hours. But for me to get anything extra done, you need to carve up the time in a different way. But it's all too about the efficiencies of styling. That's that's how a really good stylist will work. They'll go, we need to get these X shots per, done, X shots, um, per day done. How are we going to naturally flow from one to the next without literally peaking on shot three or having enough ideas and enough resources, enough energy to, to keep it going? Because a really good shoot day, as you well know, it's about energy flow, isn't it? It's about one person not zapping it and then one person not dumping it or one person not spazzing out. Um, there's a beautiful movie on at the moment called The Biggest Splash, Tilda Swinton and Ralph mm. Fiennes. And it's, it's, I mean, it's just such a great movie the physicality of it's beautiful and the story is just incredible and the cinematography is wonderful and the styling's off the charts but the energy of Ralph Fiennes in this and talking about zapping and I feel like that's it you need to be able to be super super early or super super late so you don't become that person who is literally so verbose and over the top that's spinning everyone out you know and in most cases too as the stylist you're the you know you're kind of at the bottom of the of the ladder so you want to be you're a support you're there to support with you know ideas and products so you want to be quite you know in your space um and when you touch the morning and touch the night in equal measure you find a whole new way to get stuff done 
without the interruption of people. It's like anyone who has a has a Friday where they work from home. All of a sudden, they've got a month's worth of work done because they don't have to talk to someone about their sandwich or their, <laughs> you know, that water cooler talk. Or you're just really in it, you know. Mm. And I used to think it, it had to be at a library, it had to be at a special place, or it had to be sunny, or you had to have pre, pre-seated yoga, or you only have to have, you know, have eaten certain things. But it's just it's just your mind. You can totally get yourself... That's why this, you know, I can sit here and literally write a chapter just knowing that, you know, I just also look at my bookshelf and think all the greatest writers, all the greatest stylists, all the greatest artists are like all here, all the ones I love. And, you know, all I have to do is like take a, I could blindfold myself, open a page of this book and just be, oh my God, I could be Mm. in heaven. (laughs) Oh, Megan, thank you so much. I feel like I have gotten so much from this interview. I just hope that you can smell the incense burning. I can, in the most minimalist. Isn't it so beautiful? it's It's a borderline fascist it's a borderline fascist bra- 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 brass <laughs> minimalist incense pretentious holder incense that, that came out that, that's been guiding us midwiving us through <laughs> our discussion today so thank you so much a good lesson in reduction my biggest takeaway from chatting with megan was around her tenacity the way in which she's so active across so many disciplines But ultimately, the message is always the same, which is, you can do it too. Whether she's sharing ideas in the Sunday magazine or teaching people to find their own style at the school, as glamorous as the work that she presents can be, there's something egalitarian about her notion of style. I once heard her say something to the effect of, it costs just as much to buy something ugly as it does to buy something that works. And it seems she wants everyone to make conscious choices around what works for them rather than having a trend-oriented idea of what style is. Talking to Megan, I started to think about the way she celebrates having a space of one's own, both physically in that I love the idea she shared about the top of a fridge being a mantelpiece, and also when it came to time and energy making room for personal rituals and finding the time and the space in your week to do things that make you feel good or listening to a certain type of music to evoke a certain mood seems to be a celebration of all these stimulus and triggers that allow us to create magic. And in that, Megan Morton's one of my favorite creators because she finds a way to create magic in the day-to-day. For more on the podcast, go to www.thenakedcreativeshow.com. If you like what you heard on the show today, the biggest compliment you can give is to share it with someone who can use it. And don't forget to subscribe in iTunes. I'm Dan Brophy, and I'll see you next Tuesday with a brand new episode of The Naked Creative Show.